I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Genevieve Glut. She's a feminist essayist and researcher who in recent years has primarily been looking at the influence of pornography on gender identity. She hosts the podcast Women's Voices, as written for Feminist Current and Graham Linehan's blog, and on Substack, genevievegluck.substack.com. That's G-E-N-E-V-I-E-V-E-G-L-U-C-K dot substack.com. So first, thank you for your work in the world, and second, thank you for being on the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you don't mention something here that, that I do want to ask you about, which is Redux. First, can you spell it, and then can you talk about what it is? Sure. Redux is spelled with two X's, R-E-D-U-X-X dot info is the website. And this is a website uh, started with myself and Anna Slats at the beginning of this year because we wanted to focus on the intersection between child safeguarding, women's rights, and the gender identity movement, and to show why it is that gender identity ideology poses a threat to both women and to the rights of children. So we focus on news stories related to this and um, we've exposed um, you know, predators who use a female identity in order to access women's spaces or to access children. Uh, we have broken several exclusive stories, including interviews that I conducted with women who were being housed in the Edna Mahan Correctional Facility for Women, um, about men being transferred into the prison. Uh, so we're really focused on highlighting the safeguarding element involved with the gender movement. So before we actually move into substance, I, I just want to complain for a second that so much journalism on so many of the issues that you're talking about is not what we would consider really good investigative journalism. How do you, how does one do good investigative journalism like that? Sorry to um, spring that on you, but I, I I find this a little bit of a difficult question because in my mind I don't technically consider myself an investigative journalist. I feel I'm just a concerned woman. I'm I'm concerned about things that are going on in the world around me now, and I'm just asking questions, looking into things that do not seem to be as they appear. In the first place, we're starting from a big lie, which is that men can be women. This is entirely false, and it's being presented to us by mainstream media as though it's true, as though it's somehow possible to change sex, which is such an enormous lie that it naturally led me to start asking questions about what else do I not know? So this for me is something of a, of a journey. I, I don't feel that I have reached any point yet where I have specific answers that I could give to someone, but just why are these questions not being asked? What is holding people back? And I suppose a large portion of that is the fear of the social backlash or the social repercussions. Uh, there's a great deal of censorship going on at the moment. There's a great deal of fear and a, a climate of fear about speaking your own views and opinions, or even just having a debate, um, especially around this issue. And I feel that there are many reasons why that's the case, you know, financially, uh, there's a huge financial motive behind it. There's also the um, male sexual entitlement motive behind it. And when you have these two very powerful forces combined, it can be quite intimidating. So I'm going to throw something else at you, and then we can get back to Redux, which is just today I saw that there's an article. There's a guy in Missouri 
uh, whose name is Scott McLaughlin, and he's set to be executed next January. He raped and murdered his ex-girlfriend. He now goes by the name Amber McLaughlin. And here's a headline. This is one reason that I'm just so furious at so many mainstream journalists. The headline is, Amber McLaughlin could be the first woman executed by Missouri since 1976. Um, In the first paragraph of the article, or second paragraph, it says this person is in prison for raping and murdering his ex-girlfriend. Except I think they use the, they use the, they, they say her, I, I think. But it's like, how, how does one wrap one's mind? I mean, how does one, and maybe the question isn't, how do you do this invest, this great investigative journalism, but how do they not? I mean, that's really the question, isn't it? It really is. And, you know, there's likely to be many reasons. There's likely to be many different factors. Again, with the fear or the financial motivation. And I've asked myself too, I've wondered what is with the specific skewing of statistics regarding male violence? This is deliberate in my opinion. You have to deliberately say those words that this, this man is a woman there's a choice being made here and the choice is to to lie about male violence whatever the intention is that is the result and i feel i suspect that big data poses a huge threat to challenging uh, male violence in particular so as we were starting to see the rise of the me too movement seeing feminism becoming more and more mainstream there was more discussions of talking about male violence against women in the mainstream. And then this comes along uh, right around 2015 when it started to really hit stride and obliterates the data, the statistics that we need, that we rely on to point to male violence accurately. And data is collected all the time. You know, Google is creating this repository of information. Um, So it becomes a politically necessary strategy to erase male violence against women. And part of the problem in that as well is that uh, sex offenders, uh, if we were to incarcerate all of the sex offenders currently now in the world, I speculate whether we would have enough jails to contain them. Because the problem of male violence is so normalized and so prevalent, there is a degree to which it needs to be naturalized and it needs to be accepted and it needs to be erased in order to accomplish that. Let's go back to Redux. You formed the organization or you co-formed the organization. Tell us a bit more about some of the process, especially some of your areas of interest. I mean, you've sort of mentioned them, but can you go into more detail about one or more of your areas of focus on, on Redux? Sure. Yeah. I'm interested in how pornography is involved in this discussion around gender identity. Uh, There are many, many aspects to this. Uh, I guess starting with the first aspect of children being exposed to pornography at younger and younger ages, which can cause body dysmorphic disorders. It can cause confusion. Uh, I have even seen pornography being used to groom children into gender identity. Uh, But actually, let me back up for a moment. Let me just, let's talk a little bit about 
the role of pornography within sexology research regarding gender identity. Most famously, John Money was a pioneering sexologist who has been credited with coining or at least co-coining the term gender identity. And he has been resurging in news articles recently in the past couple of years because it's been come to light that he performed these horrible experiments on children, including sexually abusing them. The most famous case being David Reimer and his twin brother, who basically this child had a botched circumcision and John Money decided to try to raise this boy as a little girl. And part of doing that money, which believed, by the way, which by the way is a horribly regressive and woman hating definition of a woman, by the way. Oh, that, absolutely. Yes. That, that, yes. If he's, if he's lost his penis, therefore he's, he, he must be a girl. That's, that's defining woman as lack of, of male genitalia. Yes. It's the Freudian castrated male as the woman. Yeah. We see that. We see that again and again within gender identity as, as a belief system that the a castrated man is a woman, that the essence of a woman is lacking, that the default human is male, essentially. Um, but yeah, so he was conducting these experiments on children trying to raise David Reimer as a girl and uh, would encourage the children to engage in what he called copulation play, which is what it sounds like mimicking sexual acts with each other starting around the time that they were six years old. So money believed that gender identity was deeply rooted in sex acts, actually. So submissiveness and dominance, that the female sex role was the core of what a gender identity meant. And because of this, he recommended showing pornographic materials to children in order to help them cement their gender identity or explore their gender identity. So pornography is actually really fundamental to this, as is the concept of sadomasochism, which is dominance and submission, that woman's identity is uh, intertwined with masochism, with, with submissiveness, with humiliation, um, and all of these factors that we can see within pornography. So yes, it is deeply, deeply regressive, but it also carries with it that element of normalizing violence against women. So within sexology, there has been for some time um, this belief that sadomasochism is the foundational structure on which heterosexual sex is built, that the man is destined to be sadistic and the female is the masochistic. Um, interestingly, sadomasochism is a mixture of two terms that both come from men. So we have uh, men defining women's sexuality in terms of receptivity of violence. Um, by and large, sexual fetishes, extreme sex acts, and sexual violence, these are all things that are fundamentally male uh, in that women simply do not account for a large percentage of 
sexual offenders. This is well known. This is well documented. Um, things that are called paraphilias, for example, sexual deviances. Um, they used to be called perversions. That term has sort of fallen out of popularity. But paraphilias being fetishes or attraction to objects or degradation. Overwhelmingly, these are practiced by men. And when women engage in such behaviors, they are typically coerced into them by men. So this belief that somehow sadomasochism is natural doesn't really fly when you start to look at the research that shows that there's a huge level of coercion involved. Um, within the concept of sadomasochism, what you have is the naturalization of subordination, the eroticism of submissiveness and oppression. This is crucial. This is something that feminists used to criticize a great deal. There was a time period during the 70s and 80s when SM, as it was called then, was being criticized uh, for kind of infiltrating the women's movement precisely because they recognized it as uh, the naturalizing of inequality. And we're seeing this, this movement coming back again. Now it's called BDSM, which I think has been done to sort of mask uh, the sadomasochism term. I think that the term sadomasochism has uh, a sort of a negative stigma to it. So the, this term was deliberately changed to BDSM in order to, to keep pushing it. But we are seeing BDSM being pushed to the forefront in the mainstream now, like we saw with the Balenciaga story recently, where children were photographed with teddy bears dressed in bondage outfits. I'm very interested in why it is that BDSM is being pushed into the mainstream right now at the very same time that gender identity is. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that the gender identity movement incorporates BDSM as a full-time lifestyle, that it associates the female with the powerlessness, the castrated male with humiliation and submission. And that's all tied into the philosophy of pornography, basically. If you were to say that there is some kind of a belief system within pornography, then that would be what it is. So I'm going to do a couple quotes here by some, and these are not Reddit weirdos. These are um, media darlings who are featured on major news networks. They are in the New York Times positively. Um, one of them is said, this is Andrea Long Chu, is a, a male, distilling the femaleness to its barest essentials, an open mouth, an expectant anus, blank, blank eyes. That's what he defines as as femaleness. And I'm going to do three of them, and which is just interesting also because not only is this horribly offensive to women, uh, oh, and he also says, at the center of sissy porn lies the anus, a kind of universal vagina through which femaleness can always be accessed. So he just compared the vagina, which is the passage, the canal, the gateway through which we're delivered into the world, into life. You know, the, the whole vulva symbol has been tremendously powerful all through human existence as, as a sign of, of life. And he, anyway, so there's one. And another one is that, this is Julia Serrano, I never believed 
really believe the cliche about women being good for only one thing, I found that that sentiment kept creeping into my fantasies. I would imagine myself being sold into sex slavery and having strange men take advantage of me. It's about turning the humiliation you feel into pleasure, uh, turning the loss into of male privilege into the best sex ever. Actually, there's two more. Uh, maybe just one more, which is this guy, Grace Lavery. He's, another, he's a male who teaches at Berkeley, another media favorite. He says that um, the definition of a woman is not adult human female, but first and foremost, quote, a person who is or has been presumed to adopt a passive role in sexual intercourse. So there's two things I want to say, and then I'll let you get back to it, which is one of them is, of course, that's horribly offensive and also very common. It's exactly what you're talking about. And the other is, is like, has this guy never been with a woman who really wants to be with him? It's like, he really thinks that women are take a passive role? Anyway, I'm done. Well, they're subscribing to the philosophy of pornography, basically, which which is, again, to bring it back to sexology, that these, these terms, these beliefs about sadomasochism, about women being inherently masochistic, they served to normalize male violence against women. Now they're being used to normalize the colonization of women by men, that women are simply a fantasy of submissiveness. Um, and by the way, Andrea Longchu also said pornography is the quintessential expression of femaleness in this book that he wrote, which was called Females, which <laughs> a man wrote a book about how pornography made him identify as transgender, and he called it females. So he's an academic. It's not as though this is some random person on the internet. This is a man who was published. He had written a whole book about this and has been interviewed. He's spoken at universities in the US. That man, Grace Lavery, that you just mentioned, is a professor at UC Berkeley. And he also incorporated what's called sissy porn into a curriculum. Now he's an English professor. He teaches literature. That's his field. Why was he showing pornography or encouraging students within a curriculum to look at sissification pornography, which by the way, revolves around men being transformed into women through degrading sexual acts? What's going on there within academia? I mean, that's something that you've talked about before within the context of queer theory, of course, but the role of pornography in academia is becoming ever more present. A, a couple of years ago, I wrote about how uh, this trans-identified male was lecturing for Princeton, Princeton University, an Ivy League school that's incredibly expensive and competitive and difficult to get into. And he gave a lecture on sissification pornography, where he had created pornography of himself in bondage, BDSM roles, threat of castration, um, all of himself, and then presented that as being empowering. So actually, let's talk about that for a moment. The fact that we're supposed to believe that women become empowered through being disempowered. Um, is incredibly manipulative. Well, that's its whole thing. Maybe we shouldn't dive deeply into that. I do want to bring it back to the sexology a little bit more because I think that what happened with sexology was to turn abusive behaviors into something normalized. So sexology was partnering with 
psychiatry. And it used to be that women might be accused of something called frigidity, right? So you have the, the frigid woman who doesn't enjoy sex. These days, the equivalent might be calling women vanilla if they don't participate in BDSM. But psychiatry was being used in order to encourage women to participate in certain sex acts with their husbands or having the threat of surgery, the clitoridectomy, um, for conditions related to sexual psychosis that they would call it. But nowadays, uh, we're seeing a similar pattern emerge again. I've seen where BDSM is being offered as a form of therapy even. I have written an article about this academic paper I, I read last year where a, a young woman who I believe was a lesbian woman went to an LGBTQ therapist now, I'm not clear, but I suspect that this person is a trans-identifying man. It's not certain. I just suspect that, so I just want to make that um, that point. But the therapist uh, encouraged this young woman to participate in BDSM, including flagellation, uh, and described a scene where the young woman was being beaten with a baseball bat. And this is offered as a form of therapy now. Um, this is increasing within the sex positivity movement in the United States. Uh, they sometimes call it kink therapy. So even the word BDSM is being changed again. There's this constant need to keep reinventing words and changing words, which I also see a parallel there with the gender identity movement. Lots of euphemisms, lots of acronyms, um, just as you find within the BDSM movement. So let's step back for a moment and queer theory would argue their queer theorists would argue that because i mean this is the, the central argument of queer theory which i reject is that because strictures against homosexuality are wrong and have been in place in the past therefore all strictures against all forms of sexuality are wrong. And so queer theory is explicitly about normalizing, is about destroying the boundary between what is normal and what is not, and what is accepted and what is not. I, I mean, I don't know if you want to go here or not, but I mean, for me, part of what I find horrifying about this is the lack of recognition that some forms of sexuality can be harmful. So do you want to go there or do you, would you rather go somewhere else? Because part of what this is, is getting at is what you were saying earlier about the normalization of the sex roles of the normalization of basically the abuse of women and the normal, the normalization of abuse, actually, frankly, and the normalization of the violation of boundaries. Oh, I was going to say, I see your point there, which is that because homosexuality was treated as a perversion, it now seems that all perversions must be treated as a sexuality. Which is not my point, by the way. That's their point. Right. Well, that does seem to be the case. Well, how I would counter that is to say, that there is a huge difference between uh, healthy and mutual sexuality between two consenting adults or between adults, between people. 
versus everything else, which is all of the things that fall under um, a BDSM categories, um, you know, obviously um, pedophilia, necrophilia, um, erotic attraction to objects or to powerlessness or humiliation. That is the main difference there as I see it. So homosexuality and heterosexuality are directed towards other people. They're intended for, you know, intimacy to promote um, bonding. That's a big difference between having a sexuality that's driven towards harming someone or a sexuality about objectification. Well, and also a sexuality based on power difference. I think for me, that's the key. Because what this is doing is, I think, normalizing. Lear Keith talks about this, and and various other great writers have talked about this. The 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 the, the sort of key insight of patriarchy. And Andrea Dworkin, as as Lear Keith says, Andrea Dworkin provided the Rosetta Stone to understand this. That the key tool that patriarchy has used has been to merge power and sex to eroticize domination so you don't just have straight out domination but you have eroticized domination so you're bringing together those two powerful drives of power which is which can be a drive in its own and then when you eroticize that you make it exponentially stronger and that's what patriarchy has done with all of this stuff that you're talking about here is about normalizing what is the absolute essence of patriarchy in terms of eroticized domination. Is that yes. part of where we're going? Yes, yes, completely agree. The hijacking of the sex drive to serve a political function, that's what this is. This is that the sex drive and the drive for intimacy is something fundamental in humans, and it has been grossly hijacked to serve the interests of manipulative and abusive people, quite frankly. And part of that too is the corporations and the money that are involved in this. So I do find it very interesting that we are seeing this rise in the eroticizing of power and powerlessness, while we are also globally witnessing a phenomenon of increasing power and increasing surveillance, some say increasing fascism. Uh, I, I refrain from using that word, I suppose, but um, you know, the authority, the power and control that's being granted to governments and corporations over us is just escalating. And we are also seeing this conditioning through pornography of accepting and sexualizing powerlessness. And, you know, this goes far beyond just the scope of women's rights. I think it, 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 it affects everybody, really. Can you talk for a moment about, you've, you've mentioned pornography a few times, and I, I want to say two things. One of them is that I was just at the post office the other day chatting with the clerk, and he has a son who's 11. And out of nowhere, you know, I'm just, you know, buying, you know, buying some stamps or whatever. And he starts talking about how much he can't stand technology and how much especially he can't stand the internet. And he said that he is trying to, and doing a pretty good job, he said, of, you know, controlling what his son watches. And he's very concerned. And he said his son is doing great in terms of avoiding sexually damaging material, 
but that he is concerned because of the ubiquity of internet pornography. So this is just a normie, you know, just a regular guy. And he doesn't know that much about my politics. And he himself brought up that the internet is incredibly harmful and pornography is incredibly harmful. And so that's one thing I wanted to say. And then the other is, I want to ask you in a moment about the ubiquity of pornography and the effects of pornography. And I want to just say one story that broke my heart, which was that there are teenage boys who think that it is absolutely normal for girls to cry in pain during sex because that's what they've seen on pornography. I don't want to disclose too much, but I'm just thinking about my teenage experiences when, you know, frankly, holding hands was as close as I needed to get to heaven, you know? It's like there is this tremendous, and, and just, I mean, that was part of the joy of being of that whole aspect of our lives is discovering the the beauty of attraction and sex, you know, the jokes of, you know, that sort of young love or the teen and twenties love. It's it's just, and it, it strikes me as a, as a terrible, terrible destruction. And sorry if I'm going too far afield. I think there's this generation that's being brought up on streaming pornography now. And it strikes me that the generation being brought up on pornography is the generation that believes that sex isn't real. Sex as in the noun, but they're, so I see the sex industry and the gender identity movement as intertwined. They feed off of each other. Um, obviously the pornography can sow the seeds of dissociation and body dysmorphia. And then the gender identity movement scoops in to profit from that. So I see the pornography and prostitution as the industry that sells sex as a verb, but the gender identity movement or the gender identity industry sells sex as a noun, they are inextricably intertwined. And you see that too within the activism around the world, wherever you have this gender identity movement, you will see that they advocate positively for sex trafficking, prostitution, pornography, uh, and that they call it, you know, sex work, that it should be destigmatized and legitimized. I mean, we are living in a Saudian nightmare. This is following pretty much along the lines of what the Marquis de Sade uh, would have advocated for, as in teaching this into schools, children being exposed to pornography. It's little wonder that, that there is so much discontent and so much anger and frustration about our bodies. And in particular, when your experience of intimacy is coming from a screen and it's not with another human. Uh, the the capacity for desensitization is enormous. You're not uh, in a situation with another person when you're consuming pornography. You're entirely alone. Um, it's it's a very I feel very depressing and isolating uh, type of activity. Um, apart from all of its many harms, of which there are many, just fundamentally to to be isolating yourself in that way where you're not getting the full sensory experience of what it's like to be a, with another a person, to, to understand another person, to accept another person's flaws or faults. Uh, none of that is, is 
something that you are forced to do when you're looking at pornography. You can, you do whatever you want. You can, you can easily access whatever kind of content you want and you don't have to deal with the realities of interacting with another human. It's, it's incredibly frightening to me. And I think that we need to conceptualize uh, another way of thinking about sex for example, okay, so Sheila Jeffries in her book, The Sexual Liberals and the Attack on Feminism, she makes a great point that there's no word that encompasses an orgasm that doesn't center on pleasure, that we don't have a word for that. Uh, what I mean is that pleasure itself is not a measure of health or morality. There are plenty of things which are pleasurable that are not healthy, that are not good for us. Um, addicts know this very well, that something can be very enjoyable, but then actually be very harmful to you. And we don't have that concept within within sex. We see all of this sex positivity that anything that gets you off is good or or positive or should be celebrated uh, when in fact that's not true. It's simply not true. Um, and we can see this playing out horribly, like you mentioned with children. Uh, I saw a story in India last year where, and this is really, really sad, uh, a couple of boys got a hold of their father's phone and were using it to access pornography. Um, they were very young. The youngest was eight. I believe the other was 11 years old. And they tried to coerce a six-year-old girl into mimicking these sex acts with them. And when she refused, they stoned her to death. This case was huge in India. I don't think many media outlets in the U.S. picked it up. I don't, I don't know if they did. I didn't see it. Um, but it was huge in India, and it prompted an outcry to track the connection between pornography and sexual violence. The fact that this doesn't exist, that that governments are not tracking any connection between pornography consumption and violence against women is actually startling when you realize it. But anyway, um, a politician lobbied for this. He wanted the government to track this information and he was refused. On what basis? The basis of privacy. That for some reason, all of our data is being mined all of our data is being tracked online. And yet, when it comes to tracking this vitally important information, privacy is the chip that they use. It doesn't make sense. Well, maybe that's because that's more saleable than they don't care about stopping women's violence against women. Exactly. So yes, it is a huge problem. Children seeing pornography at younger ages. I have talked with the mother of a detransitioner who said that her daughter was viewing anime pornography when she was starting to identify as a boy. This we're seeing increasingly uh, within anecdotal evidence. I've seen detransitioned women talk about the influence of anime pornography. There's something to be said there quite a lot, actually, with the fact that anime pornography transcends physical capabilities. Uh, when you have pornography that doesn't use human bodies, right, where it's all fantasy, where it's all completely fantasy, you can invent the most insane forms of fetishes. Uh, one of these fetishes within the illustrated genre of pornography is called vor, which means eating people. 
And it's not quite the same as cannibalism, but it certainly broaches on cannibalism. Um, of course, bestiality, of course, furries. But interestingly, the category called futa, which is short for futanari, is the pornography genre that revolves around um, combining the sexes, basically. So secondary sex characteristics of a woman, but with the male genitalia, um, things that couldn't possibly exist in nature. So we're creating these fantasies as a society, um, creating these fantasies, these, these impossibilities through illustrated and VR pornography, by the way, VR pornography is uh, on the on the horizon. And we're creating all of these new uh, ways of debasing and degrading each other through sex, but specifically degrading women through sex. And then we're also seeing at the very same time, you know, trying to uh, create the false body, the the sexualization of surgery, of this concept of a woman with a penis, which I, I really think is deeply tied to the pornography. So we're inventing all of these new ways to have different sexualities when we can't even come to an agreement on having a mutually respectful relationship of sexuality based on equality. That's not even something that's being widely discussed on the table. And if it is, again, they will call you vanilla. They will say that that's boring. Well, you're lucky if they call you vanilla. They'll call you a fascist and they'll threaten to kill you. And let's be real. Right. So if you reject this this sexualization of degradation and humiliation, um, you're considered to be the one who is intolerant, ironically. So there's a quote that I love by the gay activist and author Arthur Evans. This is from a debate back in the uh, 1980s, I believe, about uh, sadomasochism. And he was taking the side that he thought that BDSM was, that sadism was harmful. And quote, we have to reflect on the implications of what we do, both for ourselves and for the society at large. We have to do for do so for sex and for every other aspect of our lives. That's what it means to be a mature human being. And I find it absolutely horrifying that, you know, as you said or implied earlier, that if something involves an orgasm, it is completely off limits to, on the left at least, it's completely off limits to analysis of the social harms. Exactly. It, it, it would seem as though especially the male orgasm must be defended and protected at any cost. And the again, uh, I'm sorry to keep coming back to this, but the gender identity movement, that is seems to be the underlying sacrosanct motivation that whatever is sexually arousing to the man in particular, is what needs to be protected and defended. So within the gender identity movement, you see every single fetish being defended. Voyeurism, entering women's spaces. Frauderism, which is the touching women's sports. Um, transvestitism, which is the sadomasochistic fetish. Every single one of them can fall under the gender identity movement and umbrella. And that is partially why I find it 
very disturbing. So let's get back to the normalization of this. That is he is he old news or do we want to talk about Sam Brinton at all? Is let's he too about. is he too specific? I mean, it's just an example of. Well, do you want to say who he is? Um, why don't you go ahead? Because you just told me something very interesting earlier when we were speaking off the record that I didn't know. So why don't you uh, share with that? Well, Sam Brinton. I believe has been released by the federal government, but there was this huge deal that he was the, I believe, deputy secretary, head deputy secretary for nuclear waste, I believe. And um, he was, is extremely open about his, uh, his fetishes that he has, uh, he claims to have spanked over 20,000 behinds uh, as part of his fetish. Uh, he runs fetish clinics on abuse, frankly. Um, and he is is in a relationship. He talks about pup play, where one pretends to be a dog. So there is pseudo-bestiality. And then it, it ends up that he he may have been released. I don't know if he was released. I'm pretty sure he was released from, the, from his job uh, because he stole a woman's uh, suitcase, and I think we can guess what he did with the clothes, which were never found. And then he lied about that to the police, and was eventually caught out. And uh, he was carrying her suitcase around, presumably as a trophy, and was seen by multiple people carrying it all over. He hadn't even—it wasn't a mistake, by the way. He had uh, flown without luggage, and then went and intentionally stole her luggage, presumably so he could get at the clothes. Um, and he, up until that, he he maintained his job long after he'd been arrested. Um, it wasn't until this became public that uh, the Biden administration released him. And then also he had be become a bit famous back in 2010 for, this is what I just found out today, he became famous back in 2010 for these uh, terrible stories of how he had been tortured. Out, they had attempted to do conversion therapy where he was tortured out of being gay they would put uh, needles in his fingers and then show him like gay pornography to try to get him to do negative reactions to it. And uh, there's an article just today in, I believe it's LGBTQ Nation. So it's not right wing. It's it's a total, you know, left wing and pro LGBTQ magazine came out and said that the the author had been trying to verify details of it. Ends up he was lying about it all that he had said he was tortured at a strip mall, at a conversion center, a strip mall. There was no such thing in Florida. And he refuses to provide the names. And the guy said every other person he's ever interviewed who had been put through some sort of horrible conversion therapy had um, been glad to say the names of the people and the companies that had that abused them. And he refused to say any of it. So it ends up that the guy was just lying about all of it, presumably. Um, so anyway, the point is not actually the whole story. The point is that uh, this is how normalized it is that he can be a significant functionary of the United States government and there's no possible conception. Oh, I want to tell a story. Yeah, I want to tell a story that is back in the 80s, I was driving across country and just listening to the radio late at night, the AM radio bouncing off the stratosphere. And there was this, 
uh, psychiatrist or psychologist that people would call in and, and ask questions. This one woman asked, called in to, to say, so I was dating this guy and I broke up with him. This is in the 80s. I was dating this guy and I broke up with him because he wanted me to dominate him during sex and I didn't want to do it. I just felt very uncomfortable and so we broke up. And then I saw him again the other day just walking down the street. I said, how are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm doing great because I found somebody who will dominate me during sex and we have a great relationship. So her question for the psychiatrist was, you know, I, I liked him and I wanted to be happy. So what do you think? Do you think he's probably in a really good relationship? And this is, you know, do you think he's, he's actually right on this? And the, the psychiatrist said, I don't, I, I mean, I can't say what sort of relationship he's in, but complementary neuros, complementary sexual neuroses are not necessarily a sound basis for intimacy. And the reason I bring this story up is because if he did that today, he would be fired. He would receive death threats. Um, the woman uh, who had called in, if they found out her name, she would receive death threats. She would probably lose her job. Do you see where I'm going with all this? This mm -hmm. is the normalization that, I, that, that I'm at least trying to talk about. And I don't know if it's the normalization you're trying to talk about, too. And it's normalization through threats, too. I mean, it's, it's normalization on every level. I mean, I come back to, I mean, sorry if this is going a direction you don't want to go, but, you know, why aren't journalists covering this? Why aren't they? And we all know, I mean, a, a, famous, a famous person, Pat Califia, a famous queer theorist, uh, once uh, scratched a, or carved a swastika into her bound lover's arm. And a Jewish lover's armor, actually. As Arthur Evans said, what sort of person gets off by scratching swastikas onto a woman's skin? And didn't uh, Marilyn Manson do something similar recently? Um, I don't know. I haven't been following the Marilyn Manson debacle closely, but I know that he was very much into sadomasochism and had Nazi paraphernalia. And uh, he did something similar with a girlfriend um, who was Jewish with uh, threatening uh, behavior involving a swastika. So there is, yes, that overlap within BDSM of Nazi symbolism. Isn't that interesting, Derek, how people like us just, you know, talking about this, having this conversation, uh, will get accused of fascism or of being alt-right or being Nazis. And yet within BDSM, the Nazi imagery is so strong. Yeah. In fact, I did, doing research for a book, I did a quick search for, quote, Nazi and, quote, BDSM. And at that point, there were more than 10 million hits of most of which were I don't know most of which I didn't look at that many, but the ones I looked at were sort of Nazi play, as as they put it, where one person pretends to be. Uh, well, we don't need to go into that. You get what it is, and I don't know how one can eroticize. There is slave play. There is, as they call it, um, and there there's are slave. Sorry, there's something called dronification related to that, which is probably what you were just about to describe of um, sensory deprivation, um, binding. It's hard to talk about, but, you know, being mummified, uh, having 
having every part of your body immobile. Um, and then within dronification, there's, they use the pronoun it. So I don't understand how, I mean, I, I know that, you know, this is sort of end stage empire stuff. And I know, you know, I saw district 13 in the hunger games or is it district 13 It's the capital in the hunger games, you know, and I know about the society, the spectacle, um, but still this horrifies me and makes me profoundly sad. There is simply, there is simply no way to normalize abusive sexual practices that won't come back to hurt people and to hurt children, especially it is not possible. We are all engaging in this public sphere together, which is the internet, where we don't know each other. We don't know each other's true identities in some cases, age. Um, you know, I see a lot of uh, Twitter accounts uh, that claim to be children. Uh, again, we, we don't know how much of them are actually children or if there's someone else, uh, but we're all in this together in this soup where everything is being put out publicly. The concept of privacy is increasingly under threat. I actually see something of a parallel between the uh, loss of privacy in the online sphere and the loss of privacy in the real world, by which I mean the removal of safeguarding and boundaries for women and for children. Um, it's almost as though this, this fantasy that plays out online gets acted out in the real world. I truly think so. And I think that one of the driving forces behind this is pornography. And perhaps to your point about why aren't people talking about this more? Why aren't people asking more questions? Uh, I strongly suspect that there are a great many people who are invested in a certain type of pornography and have no interest whatsoever in criticizing it. So I feel that that is actually quite, uh, perhaps, perhaps even a larger problem than the academia, to be quite honest. I think also there are R.D. Lang's three rules of a dysfunctional family. And rule A is don't. Rule A1 is rule A does not exist. And rule A2 is never discuss the existence or non-existence of rules A, A1, or A2. And this is the essence of gaslighting, is that if you can talk about the situation honestly, then it's not gaslighting. And if you can talk about the abuse that's taking place, if you could honestly talk about the abuse, you probably wouldn't be doing the abuse in the first place. And so, of course, there has to be dishonesty because, um, because like you said, this is, let's go back to basics that humans, as you said, I loved what you said. Can you say it again about having a drive for intimacy? It's our most primary motive. It's one of our most primary motives. You know, we have the need for food, water, shelter, but we need each other. We are social creatures. We depend on each other. Our brains are even evolved to, to, towards empathy. Um, the mirror neurons in our brains that, that allow us to experience a similar feeling of something that we see, which is why media has such a profound effect on people. Uh, I, I think that there's a great uh, amount of effort put into denying the impact media has on us, on our experiences and our brain, because within our subconscious brain, we treat what we see as if it were happening. Uh, that happens within the mirror neurons. And so we, we are evolved to companionship, 
we depend on each other for survival or historically we did i wonder about that now and so having intimacy respectful mutual trust love all of these things that are now seem uh or seem to be called outdated or old-fashioned these were all things that we depended on for our survival and it's being completely hijacked from us the thing the very thing that makes us human is being taken over and exploited to an incomprehensible harm for for all of us as a society i do not think it is an overstatement to say that pornography is causing a ca catastrophic effect on society the the scale of which we we haven't even begun to measure and I just feel that the gender identity movement, again, is a manifestation of that uh, in the real world. You know, we have, we only have a couple minutes left. And um, one of the things that I rail against environmentally is how stupid it is to do like worldwide open air experiments that like changing the climate, you know, what could go wrong or you know, taking out 90% of the large fish in the oceans, what could go wrong? Or putting a dam in a river, what could go wrong? And let's talk about, for a moment, the internet and its use. I mean, we haven't really talked about what, I don't remember the exact numbers, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the, inter, that the pornography uses more bandwidth than like ESPN, and Netflix and all of those combined. Is that? Oh, is yeah. Oh, yeah. If you want to talk about uh, climate change, pornography is a huge uh, polluter. Um, and I think I saw I saw some research that showed that within a single year, a single year, and I think it was 2015, in a single year, people around the world had consumed more hours of pornography than humans had been in existence. And so, yeah, I want you to talk for just a moment about pornography as a huge open air experiment, by which I mean a huge experiment on the public at large. Where to begin? I, I mean, it, uh, yeah, we only have two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really big question. And, and it's one that needs perhaps its own episode to discuss because it, 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 it changes the brain it fundamentally rewires the brain um that it hijacks your dopamine center in the first place so now instead of getting your your dopamine or your joy or your happiness from another person you're getting it from an object or a product basically so you're supplementing sorry supplanting the human interaction for an interaction that is based on objects profits and products and so they're taking our interconnectivity as humans, they're taking that away from us when, with the pornography industry, and they're putting the profit motive in between us and each other. So if people didn't care about pornography hurting women and children before, I think that that's reason for people who may, uh, may be curious or questioning pornography, is that it is pretty much a propaganda for the patriarchy, but it's also a propaganda for corporate interest. So thank you for all that. And 
I don't know. I'm going to give you another impossible question here, which is, I mean, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think that you've said some extraordinary things. And and how do you sum up this conversation? I think it's vitally important for people to have conversations that we're told we aren't supposed to have. Uh, but I also really feel that we need to bring back respect, respect of each other, respect for for boundaries. Um, I think that there's a huge amount of disrespect that happens, whether online or within having controversial conversations. But I also think that in general, we need to be more in our bodies, be more aware physically. And maybe that could take the form of interacting more with other people and having these conversations, or maybe that could take the form of limiting screen time. But I do think that we just need to be more aware of how media is impacting our own sense of identity and how we see the world and importantly, how we see each other. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for all your work in the world. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Genevieve Gluck. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.